0: It is Ask the Pastor Night. Now, let me say, I have so many questions, I didn't even write them all down on here. I have them all, I got emails. So I doubt I'm going to get through it. I'll probably do another one after this. Uh, I think I'm here next week. Week after that, I'm in Costa Rica. But I think next week I'm here. I'll, I'll just, I, I don't think I'm going to get through these. So let's jump in right the head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. Yes, let's do it. Uh, can you get, I, I had three questions here on head coverings. Can you give your opinion on the current uh, day application of the, refer- of the references to head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11? And then another person asked a question, uh, verse 4 says, every man who prays, or can you read that? Yeah, okay, mine's a little small. I had a lot of stuff to put on these slides. Uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head, and prophesies should be taken there in the general rather than the specific sense, p- proclaims. Uh, with his head covered dishonors his head? Is this verse referring to public worship settings only? Does it apply to all situations? If a man serving in the army, riding on a bike, working construction, is he free to offer prayers with his head covered? Well, let, let's look at the passage. And let's, because it really, we're focused on a particular passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So let's kind of walk through that, 3 to 15. First, Paul sets forth the principle which is the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The the principle is of covenant headship. God has designed relationships covenantally. And so there's a covenant relationship between the Father and the Son. I, I do want to say we should take Christ there in the sense of his incarnate mediatorial work as a second Adam. Christ is not subordinate to the Father eternally. There's massive theological problems if we go down that road. But, but certainly, as the incarnate Christ, he then is, is under the authority then of the of the Father in a covenant way. And likewise, Christ is the head of man; man is the head of woman. The principle he's teaching here, and he's going to preach it, in a, teach it in a local context, is that we're to positively and cheerfully embrace. Uh, really two things. God's The differences between male and female by God's design, the differences between the sex. I, I'm training I'm myself not to say gender anymore because the, the, the culture has ruined the word gender. Sex, the designed male-female design of God, and then also the covenant relationships. That's the principle. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Uh, the term head is very interesting. Kephale is a Greek word. It could have a number of meanings. It could mean the source. Here it does not mean the source because the source of a woman is not man. I mean, in the sense of, you go, know, well, she came out of his rib. Yeah, but God made her. Man did not make the woman. God made the woman. The point being, the issue in this passage, and it comes out later on, is authority. A covenant relationship with respect to authority. That is what Paul, the principle he's teaching. Uh, and then he addresses the aberrant passages, uh, practices in the Corinthian church with respect to that principle. And here's where he says, "What's really small on my computer? For a man is to, for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered dishonors his head." I think his head there. There's a bit of a wordplay. It's not his own head he's dishonoring. It's Christ. is his covenant head. And so he says, for him to pray or prophesy with his head covered dishonors his covenant head, that is Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, and that's her husband, since it is uh, the same as if her head was shaven. Uh, If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut uh, cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Verse 6. Now, that is the aberrant practices that he is addressing in light of the principle. Boy, this is really small on my computer. I'll just look up here. So he goes on and provides the rationale for it. So, so, so why, why would you say that, Paul? Well, he says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man, since man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And so again, there's this covenant Order that he's describing. Now, in the man's case, he says, long hair is a disgrace for man as nature teaches. Now, there's a context for that. We know, and we know from one of the biggest things we know is from sculptures. Uh, And and one of the things that rich people do is they would do marriage sculptures. And and we actually do know a fair amount about some of these cultural practices from that time. Uh, Paul Barnett says, uh, well,, uh, the length of hair denoted a person to be a man or a woman, so when it says, when Paul says by nature there i don 't believe he 's saying by creation uh, there are people i mean actually we, we don 't know that Jesus had long hair yeah uh, those pictures aren 't him but i mean i I think there probably were times in the Bible history where maybe abraham probably i don 't know but but it, that, that 's not the point. The point is in that social construct in which they were living. When he says nature, I do think here he means that the, the, the non-redemptive culture around you uh, uh, teaches these things. And so he says uh, uh, the length of the hair denoted a person to be a man or woman. And so it's Paul's concern is to preserve among believers a visible distinction consistent with the culture between men and women. I, I do think that's what's going on there that culture, hairstyle, absolutely told you whether you were male or female. And Paul says, well, you should honor, we're going to honor two things in this respect. One is the difference between men and women, males and female, on air and gune. And we're going to honor the covenantal relationships of covenant headship that God has designed. Now a woman shall not wear her, a man's, oh, oh. so Deuteronomy 22, five says this, this is Michael Law, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does this is an abomination before God. Men and women are to look different, they, they are different, they're to act differently, they're to, and, and dress is a pretty big deal, so that, that's, that's part of the Old Testament law. That, that that tells us these things and then the man in the old covenant I do you think that's the civil law of the old covenant but we're, that the same idea that paul is teaching that with respect to hair length you should do man hair and you should do woman hair is the same as in the old testament you wear man clothes and not women clothes uh, now women uh, the, uh, her head covering is a symbol of authority because of the angels now it's interesting by the way, this is just a really difficult passage, by the way. Uh, the Greek does not say symbol of authority. It says it is her authority because of the angels. And you're going, what does that mean? Well, let's just say uh, this, is not, this is a hard passage. But uh, a natural reading of the text would say uh, the woman should have head covering because this is her authority. I, I think the idea he's getting at there is that she exercises her authority within her covenant setting, within, her, within, within the, the covenantal role that's God given her. And, and under the male headship, she exercises her authority and she manifests that. Uh, what about the angels? Well, I, I, again, I, I, I wouldn't be burned at the stake over this interpretation. I, I don't know anybody who would. I think what he's saying to, because of the angels, oh, by the way, let me just say about 1 Corinthians. You know, one of the challenges of 1 Corinthians is we have the answers but not the questions. So we have to play a little Jeopardy here. You know, what is? Um, uh, Paul is writing, 1 Corinthians, actually I, I think the doctrinal section at the beginning of 1 Corinthians is every bit as important as the book of Romans. It's just a really rich theology at the beginning. And then he starts dealing with some practical problems in the city of Corinth, and he, we, we don't know we infer from what he says is the solution or the correction what the problem was. And so when we read a statement like this, uh, I presume the Corinthians knew what he was talking about, but it's very hard for us to know what he means because of the angels. But I will tell you what I think. The most likely answer is because the angels are offended when God's created order is not maintained. Now, this is the kind of passage where if you're saying, I want you to speak with absolute authority on every word, I'm going to disappoint you. But the message of the passage is crystal clear. We are to live and we are to respect the created difference between the male and the female as God made them, and we're to respect and honor God's covenantal ordering. God is is ahead of Christ. uh, Christ is ahead of man. Man is ahead of woman. Uh, that doesn't mean that women don't have a relationship with Christ. There's an authority structure that you probably, this is not your first time hearing, this is God's design. We are to positively manifest that and embrace that. And a woman is going to wear a symbol of authority. It's her, She exercises her authority under the covenantal headship that was manifested by the head covering. Now we know, we believe from sculptures of the time, they depict women with long hair bundled in a cloth cover, especially the wedding sculptures. And that's when rich people had those sculptures made usually. And so the idea is that if a married woman is not wearing her hair up and bundled, she's telling people she's single. I, I really do think if you're a Christian in America and you're married, wear a wedding ring. If I, if you're in a bar, which I, I only... Uh, you shouldn't be frequenting them at least. And you're, you're, and you're not wearing your wedding ring. That's a cultural symbol of our time that has meaning. You're a married person. Wear your ma- wedding ring. I, I think that's a very good analogy. Uh, so God's fundamental order of relationships is to be clearly reflected in Christian worship. As uh, David Pryor. I think he's right. It is important what we look like in public worship. Now, what a statement that is! Now, this is uh, going to be very challenging to many people in our generation. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things going on in our society today—I don't have to tell you—is that there's an attack against God, the Creator, and and and, it, and and it comes a lot of a lot of it's at these two issues: uh, gender, what's you know, sex, male or female, and uh, gender—you know—identities and covenant relationships, marriage, and the way that the home is to be done. And we're living in a generation, the previous generation rebelled against Christ. Well, that's a done deal. Now the generation is rebelling against God, the Creator. Who does he think he is to tell me who I am? Well, the answer is he thinks he's God. But we're living in a time, and one of my real beasts is a lot of evangelical churches, including churches in our denomination, Instead of just cheerfully living out the biblical design and just doing what the Bible says, we think that we're being, we, there's a cultural accommodationist tendency. And so there's a, you know, we, 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 we're doing, we're, instead of just naturally living out biblical manhood and biblical femininity, biblical marriage, there's a hat to be one of the big, it, it's, it's been in our presbytery. A lot of the PCA churches in our presbytery would have a woman come up during the service and read the scripture before the sermon. Never a layman, always a lay woman. To me, it's kind of weird. Uh, So the pastor, before he goes up in the pulpit, a woman comes out of the pews. She comes up and she reads the passage, and then he goes up and preaches. Now, what do I think is going on there? We're saying to the world, we're not fundies. You know, we're not allowed to ordain women, but, you know, we want you to know we're hip with you. That is the last thing our generation needs. Our generation needs us just to honor God's word in a positive, obedient sense. And and I confess, I raised a major stink at this at the Presbytery. And it became a major stink. And uh, Because I think it's a big issue. The little girls growing up in Second Presbyterian Church when they're 18 years old, they ought not to say, I have no idea what a woman is. Little boys grow up in our church when they're 18 years old should not go, I have no idea what manhood's about. They should say instead, yeah, I've lived around it my whole life. In the home and in the church, there's the men of the church. So you, you can tell who they are. By the way, women, no, I'm not going to give you a list of clothing you may and you may not wear. But look like girls, okay? Look like girls. Boys, and that's a, and, and that's a cultural thing. We have cultural things. Boys look like boys. And then respect male headship when those things. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. Now you, you say you haven't answered the question yet. Well, no, but you've got to get there. <laughs> so Paul's conclusion, so the man should not pray, proclaim with his head covered, but a woman should. What does that mean? That God's design of headship should be honored. That we should present ourselves in keeping with God's creation and re- relational design. Uh, Paul is seeking to uphold the, creation, the creator's creation of the polarities of human sexuality amen. I saw a sign with some Ivy League woman, young lady, and she had a curse word, down with the binary, which is a way of saying down with God, because God's the one who's organized Genesis 1 in binaries. Heaven and earth, life and death, night and dark, light and darkness, male and female, the binary is God. And the Christian people need to say, you know, we like God. He's our God. He is the Lord. We're going to obey his word. And the binary is very important. We're to respect that. We should not act as if there's no interdependence between the man and the woman. Oh, by the way, in the middle of there, verse 11, he says, uh, but we're also interdependent. The man is from woman, woman's from man. And it's true. We, we function together. We certainly do. Paul affirms women's participation in worship so long as it's in keeping with the creation and covenant order. Uh, It's very interesting because he says here, talks about women prophesying in church. So people go, does that mean women preachers? Well, no, because 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 makes it crystal clear. I'd not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's the whole thing. But what it does say is we shouldn't go the other direction. That when a woman is being a woman and she's not trying to usurp maleness and she's not trying to rebel against God, she's embracing. And I do think it's that your cultural setting, for the most part, what femininity is, Um, and she's operating under covenant headship, come on up and pray during the prayer meeting. You know, women, you're allowed to come up. I mean, if you say, Brendan, won't you ever pick me? Ask him. Uh, And uh, women sing. A woman can give an announcement. And so we, we don't have to go overboard but the whole idea of her covering her head is that she exercises her authority under the headship of her covenant head, is what Paul's saying. Now let me answer the question Finally, Okay, an issue today, again, is we, it's hard. First Corinthians is difficult because you don't know the questions. Uh, also, the particular cultural symbols that Paul is referencing in the Corinthian concept, namely with hairstyle and hair coverings, You don't see that being taught in the same way elsewhere in the Bible. I think we reasonably, very reasonably infer that his point is not the head coverings. I don't believe he's making a universal principle, therefore Christian women manifest femininity and covenant fidelity by wearing a a hair covering. Now, there are Christians who do, and I'm I'm not opposed to them doing so. But if you ask me, and this is really, I think, the well-considered view, which I also hold, Paul's point is not to say that head covering is how you do it. What he's saying is you have a cultural context. Wear your wedding ring, dress femininely, but in your context manifest male, female, and the covenant headship order. I'm very persuaded that it's not about the particulars which were symbols in that culture. It's whatever it looks like in our culture. So I don't think that that passage mandates the wearing of head... Now, there are Christians who disagree with that, and I, I'm fine with them. Particularly, I know it's out of zeal for the Lord, desire to honor His Word. I, I'm, I don't see much persuasive reason to believe that the, that the particular here is the issue. Um, uh, David Jackson says, the cultural symbols may change, but the principles do not. So how do we apply this? There's a difference between men and women. Men and women relate to each other distinctively. Our dress, appearance, and demeanor should reflect these differences and distinctions. Men and women worship and serve God with equal status, but in different ways. We're to embrace it. And again, I, I, the children growing up in our church should know it. Even without us doing a seminar, and I'm not against us doing that. You know, what is a boy? What is a girl? It ought to be just the, the, the environment. They, I was I grew up in, at Second Presbyterian Church. I know what a boy is. I know what a girl is. I know the difference between the two. Um, I don't think the burden lies on the particular cultural symbols, but the biblical principle. So getting back to the one question about the man, the issue, even with Paul, it's not whether you're in worship or you're riding a bike. The issue is whether you're in worship or riding a bike, do it as a man, do it as an American culture male. Now, you know, there are I think we're in a culture that rewards us for pushing that. I think Christians should push back. There are clothing that, you know, that men wear. That's our, our society wants androgyny or it's the metrosexual, you know, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, And I think that in general, I'm not going to give you any particulars unless you're wearing like, you know, clingy girl pants, you know, and you're a boy. Uh, uh, Whether you're in worship or you're, in a construction site, be, Amer- be a boy there and look like a boy and, and do and, and what, that, what the cultural symbols are of maleness. I'll even go so far as this. Things like the man holding the door for the woman is a good thing for us to practice. Uh, I'm just taking the principle and applying it. And for women say, and I know why women say, well, if I, you know, if I let you hold the door for me, that means I'm under your covenant authority. Well, you are. I mean, <laughs> that's the, the, how's America doing with rejecting of all this stuff? Not well at all. I think Christians, you know, when a girl goes on a date with a guy, she he ought to hold the door open for her because in, in our Anglo-Saxon heritage, at least, that's a reflection of, of the male, female relationships. Um, Uh, As God designed men and women with complementary functions and relations, our appearance and demeanor should reflect that complementarity in ways that our culture will identify. Hope that's helpful for you. See, I told you I was not going to get that many of them done, but you can't can't give a good short answer to that. So someone else asks: if an adult woman is unmarried and no longer living under her father's household, does she have a head over her? Yes, the answer is her father. Now, but she's not a child living in the home. And so, you know, of course, in the ancient world, that phenomenon virtually never happened. Uh, uh, Unless you were a widow, but then you were were under the headship of your father-in-law and their patriarchal structure. I think in our society, if you're an unmarried woman, your covenant head is your father. But he needs to not be an idiot and realize you're not 12. You know, when you're 27. And yeah, and you give me all kinds of varieties. Uh, when I was a, when I was in, uh, 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 an intern at 10th Presbyterian Church, I ran the singles. I was a singles pastor. We had 200 single adults there. I met Sharon at our singles ministry. It's downtown Philadelphia. We had hundreds of singles, and yet you had women who said, "You know My father is like an abusive alcoholic." And I would say to them, I think that a woman should embrace the, the, as much as she can the biblical pattern. Maybe she finds an elder in a family in the church. Well, or, or there were certain women in the church that the pastoral staff, if a guy wanted to ask her out, he should call me as the, as the singles pastor of the church. So sometimes the church is going to fill in, and there's a variety of ways it might do that. It might be an elder, it might be the pastor, it might be uh, uh, you know a surrogate father, as it were, in a healthy way. But I do think that the, the church and the men of society, the whole idea is a, a Christian woman should spend her whole life under nurturing, protective, loving male headship. That's that's the ideal. She's raised in a covenant home, and her father's her covenant head. She marries, and she has a, a husband's her covenant head. At sixty, it's 62, I'll say, it, I'll say it at an age I've already passed. At 62, he has a heart attack and dies. Then the oldest son becomes her covenant head. I mean, maybe... Or, or you know... But uh, the idea is that women, and, and again, are we relearning in America that women are vulnerable? Women are hugely vulnerable. And the men are to be, are to, and, 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 and in general, the men as a whole are to be watching for the women. And women are to have their particular covenant man uh, head, ideally a father or husband or some surrogate for that. I think that's what we do. Uh, Jeremiah 31, if the newness of the new covenant is that members have the law written on their hearts, does this mean that saints in the old covenant were not regenerate? What spiritual blessings do new covenant believers have today that someone in a preceding covenant, Abraham, someone like that, did not have? And if the new covenant is still a mixed community, what does it mean that they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest? Excellent questions. Uh, Well, let's just work our way through this. There is a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. There's something new about the new covenant. And we are told in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 that the difference is I will write my law on your heart. I will put it, my law in your mind. I will write it on your heart and you will all know me from the least of you to the greatest. That's the difference. And Hebrews 8 has a little preamble in its description that says, look, the reason the old covenant worked was not broke was not, there's nothing wrong with the old covenant, but the people weren't able to keep it. Now, We do not really have the theological right to say that people in the Old Covenant were not regenerate. You know, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he also makes a comment, are you not a teacher in Israel? Which means a a faithful Old Testament scholar should know that you you must be born again. So he's talking about within the Old Covenant. You have Psalm 51 but David, take not thy Holy Spirit, restore unto me thy spirit, take not thy spirit from me. Uh, now, one of the challenges we have about the Old Testament is we run into virtually nobody, not completely nobody, but almost nobody in the Old Testament who's not an anointed prophet, priest, or king, only the bad guys, only the, the wicked for the most part, with some exceptions, Naboth's an exception, um, And so it's hard, frankly, to to existentialize what an average Joe Old Testament believer, what it was like for him. We have to say categorically he had to be born again. That's Jesus' teaching during the Old Covenant. Uh, We have have the, the, the Holy Spirit is not absent from the Old Testament. So you had to be born again. We will also say that according to Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, the covenant of grace in the old covenant operated in a primarily external manner. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says you had it written on tablets of stone. And so they were saved by grace. And, and they, yes, they were born again, although Pentecost means an outpouring of it. So if you had it before, and then you have an outpouring, then there's a difference in degree, but not kind. That's kind of what we'll say. The difference between the Holy Spirit and the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not one of kind, but certainly of degree. Um, but it's very hard for us to piece together, and you don't have a Romans in the Old Testament. You don't have an Ephesians in the Old Testament that has that really direct discipleship teaching, that didactic salvation doctrine in that form. And so I'm not as sure I, I can I can put a box around it, but I have a hard time getting inside the box and say, What was it like to be a Naboth? Naboth we know was saved. Uh and, but I, I don't know but, but, but I do know what it's like in the New Testament. <laughs> and so that's the situation we're in. But they had, let me say this, the old covenant was primarily an external administration, while in the new covenant, there's a new internal administration via the Holy Spirit. So when Jeremiah, and then Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah, says in Ezekiel 36, I will take my law and I will write it on your heart, that's a new thing. Even Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. There's something different about that. And Hebrews 8 suggests It's an external administration. Now it's an internal. Well, we know what our situation is, and that is a privilege we had. I think the right way to understand it, in degree. It's a difference primarily in degree and extent. Uh, We have a higher potential. We have a greater responsibility. So don't get snarky when you're reading your Bible about what an idiot Peter was. He's pre-Pentecost. You're post-Pentecost. We have greater privileges. We have higher potential. I don't know how else to put it. And we have a greater responsibility because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, the know me, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And he makes a comment, the question, uh, if if the new covenant is still a mixed community. Now, what's going on there is that our Baptist friends believe that whereas the old covenant church was a mixed community, there were believers and believers and non-believers in it, They believe that this statement, they will all know me, is saying that the new covenant church will not be a mixed community. That the church, the visible church, will not have believers and unbelievers. The church is all regenerate. Now, the biggest problem with that view is that Jesus didn't get the memo. And in his kingdom parables in Matthew 13, in in the parable of the the weeds and of the dragnet, He explicitly says that the net, the field, these are metaphors for the church, include the good and the bad. And so this conclusion being drawn from Jeremiah 31, that the New Testament must be a all-regenerate church, that would be a good conclusion if Jesus did not rule it out and Jesus does rule it out. So what does he mean when he says they will all know me? Well, a good thing to do, this is when, when a guy like Jeremiah is speaking that way, go back to his prior references, his prior use of that terminology. It turns out that Jeremiah has used that same term several times before, and he uses it not referring to conversion, but to sanctification. In the book of Jeremiah, they will know me is used in all prior references uh, of They'll walk in my ways. That's, that's really, that's, that's where it goes. They will, walk, they will know me. They will walk in my ways. They will be my disciples, and they will be in a growing maturity. Now, if in all other versions of that statement he meant that, I think we should take it that's what he means here. And he's talking about the spiritual potential of a believer in light of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I hope that was helpful. Good Thursday... In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus references Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. For so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So should we be commemorating Maundy Wednesday or should we be commemorating Good Thursday? The idea is that three days, you know, you Jesus dies at 3 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that ain't 72 hours. Now, interestingly, Dr. Boyce, my mentor, taught the Good Thursday view. So this is not an outlandish question. There's been so many debates. There have been certain eras in church history where you can be excommunicated for getting it wrong in your local setting. Uh, In fact, the bigger issue was the proper dating of Easter. You know the statement, the expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? You've heard that expression? It was said by Ambrose of Milan, St. Ambrose, and he was referring to the Roman system for dating Easter. (laughs) So, um, I think the answer is no, I think we can be really, and, and things can be complicated. And, and but here's the deal in Mark 15, 42 and John's gospel, it's the same thing. It says, this is talking about why Jesus was taken off of the cross and buried evening had come since it was the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. Now, you say that's not hard day before the Sabbath Sabbath is on what? Saturday, the day before the Sabbath is what? Friday? Not so fast, because you have special Sabbaths during these feast weeks. And the argument is made, Dr. Boyce, these pages of his John commentary are given to this, um, is that the, the Sabbath is the Friday' special Sabbath, the day that the lambs the, the day that the lambs are slain. The day of preparation in this case was Thursday, uh, the day beforehand. But I think he is wrong uh, It's the ordinary Sabbath. Why do I say that? Well, the day of preparation in ancient literature, this is Greek, seems to be a technical term denoting Friday. It means the day before the ordinary Sabbath. That expression, day of preparation, is a thing. That's like not just a description, that's a designation of a day. And the day it designates is our Friday. By the way, yes, our, our months are named for Roman emperors and Roman gods, and our days are named for Norse uh, gods, and, gods and goddesses welcome to Christendom. The, uh, uh, you'll find this in Josephus. You'll find it in the book of Judith. You'll find it in 2 Maccabees, that the day of preparation is used explicitly for Friday and only of Friday. Uh, There's a New Testament book called the Didache, maybe late first century, maybe early second century, a non-canonical book, but a really interesting book, the the teaching. And it has a thing about this where the day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. Uh, In modern day Greek, where we say Friday, they say periscuo, which is the word from this text for preparation so i do think here it's a it's actually a decent question uh it's a fine question but the answer is we know in fact pretty definitely that means the day before the weekly sabbath jesus was crucified on friday you go well what about three days well it's inclusive friday saturday sunday you go oh, not so fast mister that's like you know Fifty two hours, or I haven't done the math. Forty nine hours it's three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we take it to be inclusive. Why do we know that? Well, because it was Friday. It was Sunday. And actually there was a common practice among the Jews to do it that way. If the day if you hit the day, the day counts. That's how the three days works. So we have a kind of a literalism in our, our minds. What it wasn't a full three days. No, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. What about Ishbosheth? I know a lot of you are thinking this. You woke up this morning, you said, "Can't get Ishbosheth out of my mind." Well, uh, the question is, I've been reading in First. This is great. I love questions like this. I've been reading my Bible and something, and I'm confused about the line of kings. Why? How does Ishbosheth fit into the lineage? Well, he doesn't. Uh, Ishbosheth is the son of Saul. Now we're reading about Saul right now, and when Saul dies in a pretty disgraceful manner Ishbosheth is proclaimed king of the of the northern tribes but David you find this in 2 Samuel 2 10 and 11 that but the the Judah which means Judah and Benjamin they were together those two tribes did not accept Ishbosheth but they anointed David and made him king in Hebron. And we read that he was seven years and six months. David was king at Hebron. And then, after Ishbosheth is killed by his own people, then David becomes king over it all. So, why doesn't he count? He was, never, he was never king over a united Israel. And he was never anointed by the Lord. The Lord had Samuel anoint Saul, he had Samuel anoint David. He's illegitimate, so he's not in the list of kings. You get the first chronicles where this really plays out. First and this is, I love the chronicle. He's like, I mean, I'm not even talking about him. He's just not legitimate. So he, but he did reign as king over ten, well, yeah, ten of the tribes, not the Levites either. Um, uh, but he was never king over United Israel. So that's why Ishbosheth is not in, he's not treated We're told he reigned as king over the northern tribes, but he's not a king of Israel. How do we reconcile passages that seem to depict God deceiving with those that clearly display his purity and his truth? I'll give some examples here. Uh, Nathan's parable with David in in 2 Samuel 12. Remember, David's had the whole Bathsheba thing and and the Uriah thing. And And Nathan comes in and he tells him the parable about the guy with the sheep and he, he kills his, he's got all these sheep and his, his neighbor only has one. He takes a neighbor's sheep and he kills it. And David says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are the man. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. That's not deception. That's a parable. That's wisdom. The use of parables is not deceptive. It's actually a wisdom technique in ministry. So I don't think that Nathan's parable or anything like that is even categorically in the park. What about Solomon's baby answer? I uh, remember the woman in 1 Kings 3, the two women, the one, baby, the one woman rolled over on her baby and suffocated, that nightmare scenario. And, and then she wanted the other woman's baby. And Solomon says, well, what we'll do is we'll cut the baby in half and give them each half to each of you. And then he could tell who the mother was because she said, no, she can have the baby. That's not deception either. That's wisdom. That's an example. In fact, it's given there as an example of the supernatural wisdom given him. He's not deceiving anyone. Being skillful isn't lying. What about Jesus on the Menaeus Road? He doesn't reveal himself. That's just, that's just ministry. He's not under any obligation to reveal himself. He's doing it. Now, there's a good one here. Micaiah's false answer to Ahab in 1 Kings 22, also 2 Chronicles. Okay, that's lying. I, that I admit. Uh, Ahab wants to invade the Ammonites and and attack uh, Ramah and Jehoshaphat is foolishly there and the prophets say go up and you shall surely conquer And, and even Ahab knows these are paid fake prophets so he goes get Micaiah he's a true prophet and Micaiah says oh yes great king go up and conquer and even Ahab goes come on you're lying to me and he goes yeah I am lying to you you're gonna die, you know, you you low life, and uh, and there's commentary. God sent a lying spirit among them. So how is a God of truth doing that? Okay, here's the answer: It's holy war. You know, when I was an armor officer, I was a reconnaissance. I spent a, a glorious part of my military career was I was a reconnaissance officer. Oh, we're masters of deception. We're doing all kinds of funny. You know, I one time in one operation, I got some Jeeps and I had branches drugged behind them on a dirty road so that they thought a tank column was over there. And you're going, oh, you're lying. Yeah, to my enemy in war. That's called well done. And it's judgment. And God is ruthless in Judgment. It's the enemies of God and he's he's going to crush them and he's going to judge and he's going to send a lying spirit to them and God's not doing anything wrong. It is right for God to judge the wicked this way and God's not messing around and I really think the way to think of these occasions in the Bible is holy war and you know this is not murder when God has them when he commits genocide on these people. And people go, oh, that's terrible. Well, I, I don't say this flippantly because I know it's a sensitive topic. Wait till the final judgment. You know, think thinking Noah's flood. I had a friend who uh, his church has a uh, Christian school that meets there, and they had some Chinese students for a semester. They're non-Christian Chinese students with some deal. And he he was doing a Bible study with them. He did Noah's flood, and he said they were all horrified. Your God is so mean. He like You mean he killed everybody? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's wrath. It's judgment on the wicked. He's a holy God. And so, yeah, I mean, God's character is not offended when he exercises wrath on the wicked. And that includes sending Micaiah to go lie to him. That's, that's not, that's an enemy. And that's the way it, same is true. He didn't list this one. But, you know, Rahab and Jericho, and she's praised for, look, she lied. But she's, she's deceiving the enemy of God in a holy war setting. That does not give you permission to tell a white lie to your spouse. You're not at holy war judgment in your domestic settings. But that's what's going on there. So, yeah. How are we to understand James five fourteen to 16? which says this is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed we take that at face value that's not a prophetic symbolism that's james very practical straightforward book uh, Now, we don't mean, it doesn't say that the prayer of faith will always, look, you know, we're we're designed to die. And so the Bible doesn't mean to say, it's not saying, okay, well, automatically you get healed. That's not the way it works. And yet, we need to do this kind of thing with faith and confidence and believe that prayer, if there's any church that has encouragement to believe that God heals people, by prayer. It's this church. In the time I've been here, we've had a number of very dramatic scenarios just like this. Now, what's it about the elders? Well, the elders um, are assigned particular efficacy when they are praying as the elders because God has appointed them to that task. I I, I came to understand this when I was preaching through Hebrews because at one point the writer of Hebrews, he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. And he's giving all these reasons why Jesus' death on the cross is efficacious. And one of the reasons is because God appointed him to do it. And so when you're doing something that God appointed you to do, and then you do it faithfully, God blesses it because he appointed you to do it. And one of the things the elders in the church are are appointed to do is intercessory prayer. And the elders are to pray over the sick. They're to lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. And they're to pray in faith and we're to believe, not because I'm more spiritual and, you know, you know uh, Dennis and Bobby, they're, they're better prayers than you. No, it's because they're exercising the office and God has appointed them to do this. What about the anointing with oil? Well, uh, it's a symbol. It's a, it's a ministry physically, but it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it should be explained to the person that the thing with oil is a, a physical manifestation of the spirit 's presence when, when when the prayer's over the the lingering scent of that will, will be a reminder of god 's grace in the prayer. Uh, how does our church do that? We practice this literally Our elders do this what was it two three weeks ago we were at a, a medical facility with a member of the church, and i get I have oil and i and I I anoint his head with oil, and the elders lay their hands on him, and we pray. And uh, and when we're done, the fragrance of that oil is on us, and it's on that man. And we practice this literally, because I, I and I think that's how we are to do it. And I will say there are studies. This is not for you know I've got a I've got a you know something really serious like a man with a kidney stone. Uh, you can suck. You, you can. You can. You can stick that one out. You know? But I mean, you're talking about people dying of cancer and people. We we've had a wide variety of. them. Obviously, the context here is going to be fairly serious things. But I mean, we've done it a number of times, and we are perfectly willing to do it again. Sometimes we'll have people say, "Before I go in for a life or death, or really a, a very significant surgery, can I come?" And usually, it's here, usually in the conference room. But if the person's in a medical facility, we'll go there. Um, yeah, we're very happy to do that's a ministry appointed to the elders of the church. We believe we should faithfully exercise it. Psalms only. You go. Oh, you got five minutes to go. All right, I, I think I can do it. Please explain the historical background of singing only psalms and only a cappella, no instruments, and whether there are not there's scriptural support for it. Okay. The psalm's only position is an expression of the regulative principle of worship, which we adhere to. The regulative principle of worship says that what pleases God in worship is when we do things the way that he likes it. How do we know what he likes? Because he tells us in Scripture. That the, the Scripture teaches us positively what God wants us to do in worship. And it does so by commands and relevant examples, things like that. And so Paul said, do not leave off the public reading of Scripture. And that's why we have a, a, a Scripture reading, because the New Testament says, don't not have a Scripture reading, therefore we have one. You know. And so we worship the way God tells us. Now, our, we are not a Psalms-only church. We're not a, an exclusive psalmy church. We're an inclusive psalmy church. We believe the Psalms should be sung. We had a good seven-verse one Sunday night. I love those. I really love them when they're bad tunes. Yeah. You know, I love it. We're just being so Presbyterian. I just feel so self-righteous. It feels great. The, uh, no, but uh, we had a pretty good one. Now. What was it? Psalm 34, a great hymn we did. I love the psalm. But, uh, but our friends who hold the, the psalm-only view, one of the keys is the belief, and there's a lot of varieties on it, but usually the belief that the New Testament church arises out of the synagogue. And the synagogue was without instrumentation. There's no singing at all. They read the Scripture. They prayed. They had teaching. And so that's, that was the origin of the church. And they, therefore, we don't have singing. Uh, the other thing is uh, it takes Colossians 3.16, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, not to be referring to psalms, hymns, and contemporary songs, but those are three words that also all describe the Psalms. By the way, I think that's right. I think that in, Psalm, in Colossians 3.16, and you go, when you preach Colossians, you didn't say that. It's true, but an editor, I just, I just turned in my commentary manuscript, and I got challenged by an editor. I went back and studied it harder and changed my view of that verse. Sorry about that. I only said a little bit. I think it can be shown that Colossians 3.16 is referring to... There's whole psalms that are a psalm with a hymn and a, and a new song. I think that psalm 3, Colossians 3.16 is most likely talking about three different kinds of psalms. I don't think you can bind the conscience with that. Uh, and let me say that this position was widely advocated during the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin, no instruments... Psalm only, although some of the great tunes we do are written in Calvin's uh, era. A lot of the Puritans, I mean, knew. No. And I do think that they were not only being a regular principle, I think they were reacting, I think they were overreacting to Roman Catholicism, which would be hard not to do. Rome was so liturgically abusive and over-the-top that they just... You know, I just read a biography of Holdrick Zwingli, and man, when they took everything out, they gutted those churches and, you know... And it was the whole thing. It's, kind of, it's hard not to be a little overreactive when you're coming out of paper street. Uh, uh, what's the other view? The inclusive view also holds the regular principle of worship. But here, here's the big deal to me. It's true that the sociological context of the New Testament church is the synagogue. But the theological context is the temple. Even the synagogues were annexes of the temple. The reason there, you know, you didn't have a temple in your town There was only one temple, and in Nazareth they had a synagogue because there, you, you can't build a. It's this one temple, but the, when you take the book of Hebrews, for instance, when it reflects on worship, it uses the language not of the synagogue but of the temple, and so I think when we're looking back. For our Old Testament reference point on how we think about New Testament worship, I, 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 it's not just the sociological phenomena of, you know, 50 A.D. in Jerusalem. But when you read the New Testament, their point of reference is not the synagogue, it's the temple. And the temple had instrumentation. And the Psalms explicitly calls, and they've got, there's arguments against it, but I think this is the heart of the matter. And they go, an and annex, this is the no choir view, which some people hold very fervently. Uh, well, but you have choirs in the Old Testament. They go, oh, but those are Levitical priests. Yeah, but we're the priesthood of all believers. So I think these often become peripheral matters where the argument generates much more heat than light. But the answer from our perspective as an inclusive psalmody church, we sing. In fact, this is why we, we do sing psalms. We believe that we are to sing psalms and we sing from the Psalter. I actually like the old hymnal better, personally, uh, which is why you get an occasional insert on Sunday morning, you know. But uh, but the uh, you love having those psalms at the beginning of the hymnal as the psalter. I have to say, I really do love that. Uh, so it, we we I think that the temple which does have music. The other thing is there's evidence. This is not conclusive, but a lot of evidence, even within the New Testament, that there's. I, It feels like Paul's quoting lyrics. And you have the sense in the New Testament that they're writing compositions. So those would not have been Psalms. And so if the New Testament church, and I can't prove that, but I I believe it, though. Uh, If the New Testament church is writing music... And it's looking in the instrumentation and its doxological life is ordered on the temple. That leads us to the position we have. But I have full respect for our psalm-only friends. Um, I don't think it's the right understanding of these things. So I leave. And if you hold differently, that's fine. So I've got some more questions. Ask the pastor next Wednesday night, Nate. Uh, Father, I pray to you bless us as we thank these ways. I I thank you for questions being asked of their pastor, and I pray that I have given thoughtful and and serious answers. And uh, thank you for your word, Lord, and and cause us to have the mind of Christ, and cause us to understand where the periphery lies and where the core lies. And uh, peripheral things aren't nothing, Lord, but Cause us to have a real unity on the things that we know that you so clearly teach and that center on your son. Bless these dear folks. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.